This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I don't know how to describe it other than like, like a demon type of sound. But it's silhouetted, hulking, every bit of five and a half feet wide, 13 to 14 foot tall, pitch black. The one thing that ran through my mind when I had this encounter was I don't have a big enough gun. Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevnik. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bigfoot Breakdown. Today, we're going to discuss the Dr. H.A. Miller letter. Uh, Forrest wanted to do this, and unfortunately, she can't be with us. She's got laryngitis, so she can't talk. And Chuck is at a doctor's appointment, and Tom is having radiation treatments, and I haven't heard from Milo, so it's just me and David. Um, you know, I, I did a little snooping trying to find out the origin of this letter. I mean, it's one of these things in the Bigfoot community that floats around, and some people believe it, some people don't. Uh, it's a good one for this particular uh, show because it's what we do. We break things down and discuss them. So I, I did a little snooping yesterday, and the best I could find was that supposedly this letter was sent to someone by the name of Linda Newton Perry. And what all I could find out about her and her husband was that they used to write a lot of fictional stories and um, that this one was one that... Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to trying to do a little. I'm reading my notes while I'm trying to talk here. Um, so you have to wonder. I mean, there's no direct source. And David, you just found something. You want to bring that up about this before we get started? Yeah, down at the very bottom, it says influenced by the writings of anatomist Dr. Thomas Dwight, among which includes. Frozen Sections of a Child, 1872, Clinical Atlas of Variations of the Bones of the Hands and Feet, 1907, and Thoughts of a Catholic Anatomist, 1911. Yeah. Anytime you hear the word influenced or inspired, you got to be careful. Yeah, because it sort of it sort of implies that the story was created, or this, what we're about to get into, was created based on that information that they cite and i was interested that they cited that and then you look when you look those sightings up they are real people in real writings i mean you can actually flip through the books online for each one of those but um so let's go through <clears throat> this uh letter it's about nine pages long and it says the uh, the following was written by dr h a miller now deceased and i'm kind of curious about this it says born in new england december 12 1909 and for me you know, if you're going to cite something, if it's if you're going to talk about specifics, why say New England instead of a particular state the person was born in? It kind of kind right. of begins with muddying the water just a little bit. But let's go on. Yeah, I was the first. Okay, so now, see, and I'm having a little trouble listening to begin with. It says, "Born in New England, December twelfth, nineteen o nine." Is that 
I was born then, or is it like a third person saying that? Because then it, there's, you know, a spacing <laughs> and says, now he's talking in the first person. I was the first and only child of Christiana and Arthur Miller. My mother died in childbirth, and I was subsequently raised by my father until he remarried to a French woman when I was 12 or 13 years of age. Soon after their marriage, she bore a baby girl. I finished my high school education while living with my father, stepmother, and half-sister. Okay, now, <clears throat> there's, uh, in, in, in parentheses, it says, there's an entire section here that I could not transcribe. Handwriting was illegible. So, um, it, you know, this could be straightforward or it could be, you know, again, misdirection if it's fake. So we're going to let you, the reader. Yeah, because it... It makes you wonder if there's stuff in there he's leaving out on purpose or to fit his narrative or if it, he actually just couldn't read the stuff. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, again, folks, it's up to you to decide as we go through this what your thoughts are. So he goes, the letter goes on, I remain in New England. Again, in New England, not a particular state. Um, I remain in New England for my undergraduate work. Uh, it doesn't mention what college. I thoroughly enjoyed the outdoors and ocean and forest, or the ocean and forestry. Uh, my under, undergraduate studies focused on forestry and land management. While in my junior and senior year, I was employed by the federal government. Okay. Now I didn't look this one up. Um, I suppose if it's real, there'll be an actual reference to this. But the next paragraph says, "I worked at Lockwood Farm." Uh, part of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. I learned about hybridization in agriculture and enjoyed... See, Okay, let me go back a little bit now. See, the wording is funny because it says, I learned about hybridization in agricultural and enjoyed the hard outdoor work in the cornfields. So <clears throat> the wording the wording is a little odd there, but I mean, if you're writing if you're an educated person and writing a letter, um It's not gonna sound like that. <clears throat> no, you wouldn't word it that way. Um so that's that's a problem right there. Uh I began to find great interest in scientific workings happening with corn seed at the time. I completed an additional year in forestry science and graduated uh, in 1930 with an AB from Yale University and an MF in 1931. MF is Masters of Science in Forestry. Okay, so we got they were a little specific there. Okay, he says, I labored at Lockwood Farm for a few years and gained great interest in science and medicine. Okay, so now, I, I, guess, I guess, you know, in those days, maybe they, you know, we kind of go all over the map with education, it, whereas today people are more, you know, they, they kind of get in their their uh, education field and they and they pursue, you know, higher degrees and, and kind of stay focused. Right. So, um, it goes on. It says, By this time, I, I did hope to attend medical school and become a physician. I expeditiously applied for medical school and was accepted to Harvard and began my medical training in 1938. Graduating from Harvard Medical School in the early 1940s, I completed residency and fellowship at Harvard and began to specialize, a very specialized career at the time in orthopedic forensic surgery, Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. <clears throat> and I, I would assume 
Now I didn't I didn't go through the details of trying to look this up all this information, but it's out there uh, for people to look up if they want to actually dig into the details of this story. Yeah, you could get transcripts from colleges and stuff like that. Yeah, there should be some historical documentation that would support this or refute it either way. Um, yeah. It goes on, because of my previous work with the USDA, uh, and I don't, I'd have to look up and see what year the USDA was established. I don't think it was called the US, uh, USDA at that time. I was quickly employed by the federal government in early years as a physician related uh, mostly to providing medical support to various employee types, firefighters, etc., within USDA slash Forest Service. Uh, and I'm trying to remember when the Forest Service actually came under uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture. And I guess it's probably worth looking up to see when. Well, he, and he doesn't actually say, well, 1938 and after, I guess, 1940s, when the USDA was established. So, sorry about that. I wanted to, I wanted to do a quick. Okay, well, I was wrong. It says that Abraham Lincoln uh, signed legislation to establish the U.S. Department of Agriculture in 1862. Okay, so. Uh, and the Forest Service began in 1876. <clears throat> okay, so we're uh, the time, the time frame, and what what it says is correct. Uh, let's move on then. I also became the forensic expert and anatomist for the USDA and was called to examine most major accidental deaths of USDA slash FS servicemen. Due to my interest in genetics and early experiences in agriculture hybridization, hybridization sorry about that folks, I was assigned <laughs> to scientific teams which investigated the physical nature of genetics. Uh, our early experiments determined that DNA is the component of the chromosomes where genetics were, or should be studied. This, along with the efforts of several other scientists, led to the discovery of the double helix structure in the 1950s. Uh, it was at this same time that several of our team members were called to Bandera County, Texas, where the forestry scientist slash biologist assigned to Edwards Plateau reported dead bodies of strange human or a strange type of human. The first reports I received were, spec, were speculating that they were feral humans from the local Comanche Indian tribes. Uh, the bodies were supposedly found in or around one of the massive caves within the Edwards Plateau area. <clears throat> I'm not familiar with that area, so I guess if anybody lives in that part of Texas, they could probably. Um, <laughs> you know, message in the comments, any information about that area, you know, if it's actually, yeah. you know, the area actually exists and if there's a lot of caves there. Um, when I arrived in Texas, I was surprised to find three bodies, one adult, one adult female, and two female juveniles. I examined them as I typically would any human subject, but to my dismay, one of these creatures still seemed to be alive. I became quite upset with the local scientist but they reassured me that they confirmed all three were deceased. After further investigation, I found that these creatures were not human. They, in fact, had a remarkable, rapid, reparative process, hence the reason one of the creatures seemed dead, but in fact was regenerating to a degree. Unfortunately, the restorative abilities of the creatures were not enough to keep it alive. 
They were massive in size and distinctly a new primate species known to science, unknown to science at the time. Sorry about that. <clears throat> okay, now. It, it gets interesting here because now he's he's throwing around some what appears to be scientific terminology. So we'll, yep. so we'll get into that. I spent years studying these creatures, which are scientifically known. Okay, and I don't know if this spelling is incorrect, but the term is actually Cebidae. And we had our forensic anthropologist, John, on a few times a few years ago, and we talked about this term. And it's easy to look it up. It's And I'll actually post this letter on the Facebook GRG Bigfoot Research page so people can look at it. But um, the term Cebidae simply means New World Monkeys which are primarily South America. Um, so that's off. That's not correct. That's that's part of, and I'll, you know, maybe we'll talk about that another time, how I, uh, what I was told about this particular letter, but all that term means, and, and they've got it, um, it's actually spelled a little bit incorrectly. It's, they spell it as C-E-B-I-D-A-T-E-L-I-D-A-E. So, he says, confirming they were most certainly not human. <clears throat> they were definitely of primate origin. Well, you know, Cebidae means New World Monkey, so it would be primate. Yeah. Um, but with traits, But with traits seen in various species of primate, most of which were New World Monkey, which is that's where that term comes from, what that term means. Um, <clears throat> so he says... And I'm just going to use Cebidae. That's the that's the actual word found in San Antonio, Texas area. Very much howl like a howler monkey. Quite frightening to hear at night. Uh, see, now that's one thing we we do know about them. You know the vocalizations. We've heard many of those. We've had plenty of them on the show. Right. Um, but it's not just there. These things do it everywhere. So, uh, but let's go on. Um. At one point. Early in my analysis, I found a great deal of similarity between these Bigfoot creatures and the howler monkey. That was until 1962. In late 1962, early 63, I was notified of a large human-like creature by the Redding Forest Service folks in California. Uh, I arranged transport of the body to my primary location in Colorado. It was reported to me that the body was found under a large tree that had been violently struck by lightning and blown to the ground apparently killing this large creature during my investigation i found the animal to be very similar to those i had studied in the bandera county area of texas with some marked differences this northern version of the subaday seemed to have some new world monkey attributes attributes i noted in the texas animals see now he, he goes on he says um Known today as Cebidae tex, Texicanus or C. Texicanus. Um, however, there were unique traits found in the Pacific Northwest. Animal today known as Cebidae nerturos pacificus or C. nerturos pacificus. And I may be pronouncing that incorrectly, but it's good enough for this uh, reading. Including thumbs that are not entirely opposable, as we see in modern humans. Uh, which is, you know, it's you see that in great apes and, and monkeys where the thumb is not totally opposable like in ours, our hand. Exactly. Says, um, 
Seeing Arturo's Pacificus, entire hand was truly designed for grip, including proximal pads making the hand somewhat look hooked like having flattened nails resulting in my theory that these northern creatures developed an ev evolutionary arboreal nature while the texas subfamily developed a trogloxine nature now i'd have to look that up to see what that means but um <clears throat> okay <clears throat> these terms these names he says they're known as today when you do any searches, and I did searches on the USDA site and other other federal agency sites and elsewhere, and the only place you get a reference to any of this stuff is this letter. Yep. In other words, there there is no such scientific names anywhere. And I know people say, well, the government's <laughs> hiding it. Well, you would get something somewhere. But the only references are these letters and... Um, Again, you know, we're talking about what New World Monkeys Pacific or New World Monkeys Texas. I mean, these these are not monkeys. Yeah. Um. And I don't know. Again, any I, I don't know what they use. Any terms they use these days, they're widely known. They're widely used, and they don't usually have at the end of them the region that they were found in. True. Um. I'm curious now, T-R-O-G-L-O-X-E-N-E. -E. I was curious about that terminology. I mean, it's like the where he says the the sea Nerturos Pacificus. Yeah. To me, that just sounds like somebody trying too hard to sound scientific. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay. Now, there there is a term called trog... Loxine that he's using here. Um, let me see. I just want to. I want to try to give this information. Um, what it looks like is they're cave dwellers, cave dwelling monkeys. Okay. Yes. Yeah, is um, okay. I'm not going to try to pronounce that. Also, cave called cave guests are animal species which periodically live underground. Now, it's not saying just monkeys. It's just animal species in general that live at least part of the time underground. Um, so let's go back. Okay, so now he's saying, okay, now now we're going to be a little more specific. What he's, what he's trying to say here is uh, he's talking about the hands. The entire hand was truly designed for grip, including proximal pads, making the hand hook... Okay, making the hand somewhat hook-liked, hooked-like, having flat nails resulting in my theory that these northern creatures developed an evolutionary arboreal nature uh, while the Texas subfamily... Okay, so what he's saying is that the ones in the northwest are partially tree-dwelling while the ones in Texas are more cave-dwellers. Right. But but his terminology, you know, some of the terminology is way off. Um, this Pacific Northwest creature found in 1962-63 also had scent glands on her forearms. Now, this is something that we've talked about uh, ourselves numerous times because the creatures don't always exhibit a strong smell, only sometimes, which, which right. clearly points to them most likely having scent glands like gorillas do. 
uh, yeah. and being on, and this is where I wanted, I was hoping Forrest to be here because she could talk on this much better than I could. Um, so this is one of those pieces that's probably real information and, and I won't delve into this because Mr. Blackwell another time, but he and I talked about this particular letter and he says, some of it's real, some of it's not. He said, you go through and tell me which parts are real. And I hit the nail on the head every time. So this is one of the parts that we knew about. Like, yeah. like flattened nails, things like that. I've seen, seen the nails up close. So I know what those look like. Um, but the scent glands on the forearms, uh, you know. And, and this is, and I'll, let me go on here and I'll, I'll comment on this too. Um, so he says, this is more evidence that the, the, the northern one is arboreal to some extent, leaving scent marks up and down tree while climbing. Um, I have found evidence of them being able to climb trees and sliding down and, and photograph that. In fact, it's some of that's, I think some of that's in our first film that's coming out. Um, but you don't see it often. And if you don't know what you're looking for, you wouldn't notice it. But we didn't yeah. notice, we never noticed any kind of scent involved with it. Most Sasquatch, I would personally consider them to be fairly arboreal, but not to the point to where that is something you expect all of them to do all the time. Right, right. So he says, not, uh, he goes on, he says, not only was this creature smashed by the large tree, but she was also badly burned with areas of lightning prints on exposed skin. I intoned in my medical examination and report of the body that it seemed as though the lightning struck the animal passing through the body and into the tree, subsequently weakening the tree and causing it to fall to the ground. Um, it did seem as though the animal had fallen to the ground first, with a tree falling on top of her afterwards. But the evidence as to whether the animal fell first or with or with the tree is inconclusive. However, it was clear. It is clear lightning struck the tree at a decent height of over 20 feet. Therefore, this animal must have been clinging to the tree at the time of the lightning strike. More evidence of the arboreal nature of C. notorus uh, pacificus. This animal also has additional medial padding on the feet, which it would use to climb trees by clinging the tree with its hands to support its weight. Um... As far as that part, I mean, you know, I, I've got a bunch of footprint casts, and they do have very thick pads. Um, but in terms of being able to grip a tree with that pad, we don't know. Both the C. notorious and the C. texicanus uh, have oversized lower jaws, which is true. They do, all Sasquatches have very large jaws. Yep. Uh, including a mastiff. Okay, I don't know. I'm going to butcher this term. It's sternocleidomastoid musculature uh I, i'm sure they must must be the trunk muscles or, or upper trunk muscles i'm guessing um this this must have been due to their rugged diet and moreover their need to crush oh maybe that's maybe that's the uh the muscles that are around the jaws sorry folks I, i'm not that familiar with some of this terminology they're using so um this must have been due to their rugged diet and moreover their need to crush bones their lower dentum at first look has a second row of molars but after years of research and examining dead bodies of these animals i have found that the lower molars are simply oversized or fused resulting in massive bone crushing tools 
Um, so I'm not sure what to, what to think about that part. Um, so is he, is he basically saying they had double rows of teeth? Well, he, he was saying at first it appeared that way, but after years of study, he concluded that these were actually um, teeth were fused together, making this these large or these formations that were apparently used for crushing bones. Okay. Okay, he says, um, due to their jaw size and bone-crushing dentum, it is also clear that all subfamily of this creature are omnivorous, predaceous, and opportunistic. Now, these things we know. Uh, so people who in the past used to think that Bigfoot was just a herbivore, um, you know, that simply wouldn't support a species like this. They, they would have to be, uh, especially with a large brain, they would have to eat protein. And then we find, you know, with all the scat and, and animal kills, we know that they prey on animals and eat animals. Yeah. Um, okay, let's see, where are we? Uh, we did find that the female killed during the Columbus Day storm was pregnant uh, with monozygotic embryos. All female Cibidae bodies I've investigated throughout my career have been preg pregnant with monozygotic embryos. This again incorporating additional evidence of the New World monkey relationship. Um, and that's something I'm not really familiar with. See, I, that's why I wish... Forrest was here because you know she would have a much more um she'd be much more familiar with that terminology so right. let's take a real quick look um hmm. let's see what are they trying to say oh okay so now this is odd um I looked up the term mono monozygotic embryos and it says, occurs when an embryo splits after, after fertilization, resulting in identical twins. So what this letter is saying that, uh, let me go back a little bit here. It says, I have, all, all female Cibidae bodies I have investigated throughout my career have been pregnant. So, okay, so everyone that he's found has been pregnant or, or examined. Um, I, I find that a little hard to believe, to be honest. Um, yeah, what are the odds? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, that makes a big, that raises a big question mark for me. Um, and, I, and I'd have to ask Forrest, you know, if that's something they see in New World monkeys also. Okay, so, so due to my investigation of the 1950s bodies in Texas and 1960s Pacific Northwest Day Columbus storm body, I submitted to the Department of Agriculture that this is a new uh, it says platyrin, platyrinic species, which is also a word for New World monkeys. Um, which again, you, you wouldn't, if you were going to designate a new species, you wouldn't call something that's so different a New World monkey. Yeah. Uh, I know Forrest would say, well, you know, that's, it's, you know, within the ballpark, I suppose, of calling you know, it would be, she would refer to it as a great ape, not a monkey, which are vastly different. Yeah. Uh, okay, so. And then he suggested that a new species under, under the, uh, okay, par, parv order should be created. 
fellow scientists of mine agreed, given the fact that the creatures we examined in both cases were obviously bipedal. Okay. You misspoke there because it said disagreed. Oh, let me see. Let me go back here. Sorry about that. Yes, you're right. Fellow scientists of mine disagreed given the fact that the creatures we examined in both cases were obviously bipedal. And what is this? Caterini in terms of their nostrils facing downworld. Old world monkeys. Okay, so... Um, and that's right, the nostrils would face down in these creatures. However, the juveniles we examined are much more um, platterini in terms of nostril breadth and position, the width and, width and position. I won the debate in the end, and due to the fact that no evidence thus far demonstrates that these creatures crossed over from the old world, but are simply new world monkeys adapting to their various staged areas within North and South America. Um, okay, so he's saying that these things developed on North America and nowhere else, essentially, which is we know is not true. Yeah. I, I have since retired, and I now, and I know some new University of Utah-based scientists and Idaho understand the genetics a bit better. Their findings are only supporting my original theorems, or at least I am told these molecular biologists will soon understand the similarity with humans. Once the Human Genome Project is completed, as a result, I will refer to the Sasquatch species as um, Sebidae with the following subfamilies. And again, he, he lists all these things, uh, Arctos, the Pacificus, Samphos, Americanus, Texicanus, Amazonio. And these, these terms are nowhere. They don't exist anywhere except in this letter. <laughs> So, this is totally erroneous, this part. And he says, uh, the asterisk, there was any of these any of these species found outside the New World must have originated from and migrated out of the New World. Um, not likely. It's very likely that these creatures came from Asia like humans did. You know, they didn't originate here. They came from the Old World and migrated into North America. So... Yeah, they crossed over that land bridge. Uh, God, when was it? And, and probably before humans did, because they yeah. were apparently an older species. But let's move on. All of my experience with this primate has been post-mortem, save a few unique experiences in the wild. To my knowledge, a live specimen has never been captured except once, for once in Northern Research Station in North, see again, the writing is not correct unless it, and people say, "Oh, maybe it was the person transcribing." Well, why would they need to transcribe it? The guy wrote in English, you know. Yeah. So, um, except in Northern Research Station in California, however, the animal did not survive in captivity and died uh, after only several days. Okay, so now we do know that the jackal creature was captured in 1882. So that again is not not correct. I of course I of course examined the body. There were many rumors that this captured Sasquatch was somehow magical and could shapeshift, and that is why it couldn't be found. The truth is, the folks at Northern Research Station were very devastated and embarrassed that this live specimen died so quickly after being in captivity. So no, they are not magical. They are highly intelligent primates. Highly intelligent primates is true. All 
primates are highly intelligent. So that's it's, a- it's funny how he brings up the fact that even back then, because people couldn't explain things they do, they went to the magical exactly, uh, yeah, and shape shifting crap. And he doesn't say who said that. I mean, so what? What are these rumors? I mean, I, I, I just have no idea. I don't quite get that. That's. Um, I mean, if you're writing as a scientist, why even bring that up? Yeah. Because it's nonsense. Having one die in captivity is very difficult to witness due to the human nature and feeling about the species. In reality, captivity will never be realistic for the Sebidae because of their size and complex brains. Uh, Similar to captive white sharks, the species cannot thrive in captivity and quickly die as a protective mechanism. Um... I don't know about protective mechanism. That's, I I, I have some issues with that. I spent a great deal of my career as an expert for the federal government concerning Sebidae and throughout the world, including the bodies recovered. See now, okay, there's a contradiction because we go back just a little bit. He talks about if they were discovered elsewhere in the world, they would have migrated out of North America to the rest of the world, right? So he doesn't say that there was any any elsewhere, right? Yep. Now he's saying that he is an expert for the federal government concerning the creatures and throughout the world, including bodies recovered. Now this is another one that's nonsense, including the bodies recovered in the nineteen in the eighties due to Mount Saint Helen eruption. Again, he's he's not the the grammar's incorrect for somebody that's educated. <laughs> uh, we made many recommendations to protect the species, but the DOI. Uh, has constant concern regarding the impact of such a decision due to the vast number of areas this species inhabits. Such a decision would have potential negative impacts on the natural resource industry. It's also false. The the USFS is now working uh, more towards creating protective wildlife refuges for Sebidae. Um... We can go back. That's 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 a discussion for another time. <laughs> yeah. Says there's another entire section here that I could not transcribe. Handwriting was illegible. Others on the team focused on molecular genetics. Uh, there's another ins- another entire section here that I could not transcribe. Handwriting was illegible. U.S. Forest Service and Department of the Interior is recognized now that the natural resource industry is resource industry is not the economic center it once was. So a final decision is, so it, okay, a final, okay, this is a little confusing. So a final decision has been made to finalize the class one identification of the species. There is a 20 year plan to incorporate all wildlife protection areas throughout the areas of the United States to ensure federal land protection for Sebidae, starting with California, Colorado, Idaho, Oregon, Utah, and Washington. I was upset by this decision because the first location the species was identified specific, or scientifically was Texas. I petitioned, and as a result, the government, the, okay, the government Canyon State Natural Area will be protected, open to the public, and expanded in Bexar County, Texas. The long-term plan will be to open each of these designated natural areas to the public. Once all the designated Sebidae natural areas are open to the public 
The Department of the Interior will announce the species as an endangered New World primate. I am not sure if this will happen, and the Government Canyon State Natural Area will not be open to the public until 2005, then expanded later in 2009, and then again in 2012. This will long happen. This will happen long after I am dead, I'm afraid. So, again, we go back to people living in that part of Texas. Is this something that's that you know about? Is this real? You know, was this, um, you know, this um, government canyon state natural area, is that something that's there? Is it real? The time periods he mentioned, was that, is that a reality? Um, he says, he goes on here to say that, I'm currently still living in Colorado, and I have attempted to journal my experience with the discovery of this new massive primate. The species is amazing, powerful, and deadly if, it, if angered. Like any animal, it will protect itself, its food source, and its young at all costs. Um, okay, so he lists a couple other scientific terms as its primary food source. Um which are basically undulates, deer and things like yeah. that. Um, it's imperative that the federal government continue to designate natural areas. Otherwise, a scarce food resource available to subdate will result in more opportunistic feeding behavior and closer interaction between humans and subdate. These creatures and human and okay, these creatures and human beings simply do not coexist. And this is H. A. Miller. MD, PhD, now deceased, and he has an influence by the writings that you cited. So, David, what do you think? I think it's a bunch of crap. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I had mentioned, and, and we'll go into this with Mr. Black, but he told me, we, we discussed it a few times, and once he said, well, go through the letter, tell me which parts you think are real and which ones are not real. And I did that for him and he said I was 100% correct. So uh, when we do the, the show that we're doing with Mr. Black and it, that'll, that'll happen after I get moved. He wants to record a few months worth of shows uh, so he can edit and make sure everything's correct in them before we actually launch that show. But uh, it's better if we talk to him about this because he had a lot more, a lot more information. But yeah. um, so, a lot of the stuff he talks about, there's some truth to it. Like, you know, with the government set aside certain pieces of land to protect it. And I know a lot of people out there think that the government has done these things in order to protect the areas that Sasquatch are known to be in and inhabit. But this guy, he's just all over the place. And it's... The terms he uses aren't correct. The it, it's just and and here's something that's interesting. The whole too. reason you were having a hard time reading it was because of the way it's written. <laughs> yeah, grammatically it was not not very well written grammatically. So, uh, especially for someone who was a PhD, they would have yeah. they would have written better, um, especially in those time that time period because. People used to be very, especially educated people, very well trained in terms of writing and, and their punctuation and things like that. So, uh, and I know people might say, oh, well, it was the person transcribing the letter. Well, the letter was in English. It should have been fairly clear uh, how it was transcribed, if it was transcribed. So, 
Um, One thing that I found interesting that's a red flag to me is back when he was talking about how he won his debate with these other scientists. Yeah. When, when, when a group of scientists get together and they are coming up with a, a new theory or a, a new species or whatever, they all have to agree on it. And if they don't agree on it, nothing's going to go forward. And you can't tell me this one guy with this so-called evidence that he had persuaded all of these other scientists and they said oh yeah you're right we'll, we'll go for it well and there was here's the thing he was talking about i mean the what he focused on was which direction the nostrils were pointed and yeah. and if there was a debate about you know which group grouping the species would belong to there'd be more than just which way the nostrils are facing and, yeah. and he didn't mention there would have been more profound reasons um you know, biologically speaking, than just the way the nostrils were pointed. So to me, that was kind of a kind of a weak argument for an argument among supposed scientists, right? Especially yeah. with something that's like this. This is a, a pretty big thing. Yeah. You got to have years of research and proof to back up your theory so it's no longer a theory for stuff like that to be recognized officially and passed. Right, right. Well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna weigh in on it. Um, you you gave your opinion, and um, I, I guess at this point it's up to you folks. You know, let us know in the comments if you're on YouTube what you think, and uh, give us your opinions. So, uh, do you have anything else, David, or are we ready to wrap this session up? I think we're ready to wrap it up, cuz. All righty. Well, thanks, folks, for sitting in and listening, and uh, let us know your thoughts. And if you got any information, especially about that Texas area, we'd love to hear it. So thanks, everyone. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.